is Sit Rep on DFBS. Huge exercises by both NATO and Russia and China show off military might. As long as we continue to uh, invest in exercises like this, then I think the risk of a miscalculation by Russia is greatly reduced. The Taliban pushes into a former British stronghold and how a little bit of Shakespeare is helping injured soldiers. Welcome to the programme. So 5,000 NATO troops are currently taking part in the biggest airborne exercise in Europe since the Cold War. Personnel from 11 countries are involved, including paratroopers from C Company, 2nd Battalion, the Parachute Regiment. Exercise Swift Response is taking place in Germany, Romania, Bulgaria and Italy. Rob Olver has spoken to Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, Commanding General of the American Army in Europe, and overseeing this latest exercise. Number one was the recognition of a need for assurance to those allies who live closest to Russia, who felt the most threatened. Obviously, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, um, as they watched what Russia had done. But also a need to adapt the alliance, that our high readiness forces needed to be uh, improved. Uh, The command structure uh, and the force structure needed to be adapted to this new security environment. And also a need to increase the number and sophistication of exercises. The risk of of a miscalculation is greatest if we don't demonstrate the ability to conduct operations, to move, to be able to anticipate or respond. How worried should we be about Russia? I would only be worried about Russia if the alliance starts to come apart. As long as our alliance sticks together, as long as the EU sanctions remain in place, as long as we continue to uh, invest in exercises like this, then I think the risk of a miscalculation by Russia is greatly reduced. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges speaking there, Commanding General of the American Army in Europe, speaking during Exercise Swift Response. Well, with us on the programme this week are our defence analyst Christopher Lee and journalist Tim Marshall, who's covered foreign affairs and international politics for a number of years, if I can say that. Tim, welcome to you both. Uh, Chris, first, uh, the US General there saying these exercises are essential. Is that right? Well, I think all exercises are essential, aren't they? Because, I mean, you've got to wind it up sometimes, see if it works. But I tell you something, there's a, probably about three or four people well above his pay grade in Washington at the moment and saying, what the hell are you doing, Ben Hodges, putting it around that uh, um, that the that Putin, for example, or Russia, is not too much of a problem because the whole of the, uh, the Pentagon uh, specialised programme, as they call it now, uh, on Europe security is based on the fact that they fear, for example, what Putin might do or what his own people might do, as opposed to even IS. And I was there three weeks ago, sitting in the Pentagon, talking this through uh, with the chiefs of staff, and we were ex- trying to work out why this should be so. And so, for example, they put uh, uh, unseen circumstances that could have been a result of 43% of intercepts, uh, air intercepts at the moment, or face-to-face intercepts. We have a 67% increase increase in the numbers of flights, and it's those small things that produce the miscalculations. And so I think that, well, 
Ben Hodges is probably, in truth, right, is not what his own people are saying publicly. And Tim, as the same time as these NATO exercises are taking place, we've of course got that sabre-rattling from Russia and China. Just how significant is that in this context? I think that it's almost tit for tat. Look, exercises go on all the time, but there are levels of exercises, there are locations of exercises, and they're both chosen very carefully. And if you look at the NATO one, which you call, uh, sorry, you call the Russian one sabre-rattling, I'll come to that in a moment, they see that as sabre-rattling. Um, and the American officer there actually was linking this to the Ukraine situation, whereas in fact, officially, Operation Swift Response is not about that. But when you talk about signalling, the 82nd Airborne are in this exercise. The last time I saw the 82nd Airborne was in Kosovo in 1999, when Russia got a very bloody diplomatic nose. Now, whether they've chosen the 82nd on purpose or not, I don't know, but the Russians will look at it as sending them a signal. Remember these guys? They're the ones who really messed you over. Right, as for the Russian exercise, it's 25 miles from the Estonian border. They are sending their signal. And I looked at the, the two um, reasons for the exercises. The NATO one is to demonstrate the alliance's capacity to rapidly deploy and operate in support of maintaining a strong and secure Europe. In other words, against Russia. The Russian exercise is to localise an armed conflict and eliminate illegal armed formations in the Eastern European region, which is pretty wide, and it could mean militias operating in the Baltics. So they're both signalling, and... The officer is right. You do have to send that signal to say this far and no further. But when both sides are saying this far and no further, it's a bit difficult. There's another side to this, and that is we, we must remember that uh, we've got Putin, Obama, or whoever you like to put in the in the cast, sort of eyeballing each other. It ain't working like that in truth. Um, the Russians were involved, uh, were, were told in some big detail about this exercise uh, th three months ago. Uh, who would, by and large, to be taking part, the dates, what they would be doing. The Russians gave NATO, or they gave NATO and they gave Sakur, similar warnings about the whole thing. Uh, so this is not, my goodness, look out, here come the Russians today, or here come here comes Sakur today. Uh, Volker Rohr, who was probably one of the best defence ministers uh, the Germans had, I was listening to him the other day, he said, you know, this dangerous miscalculation that everybody talks about, it is unlikely, but when you start to put a list of how things get stepped up, mm. not that you don't go to war, but stepped up, that's where it comes from. Well, let's see what the F-22 means in all this in terms of gesturing and posturing across Europe and indeed the world. Uh, because this week the US Air Force announced it's to deploy its latest combat aircraft to Europe. A small number of F-22 Raptors, previously very secret, are joining the European Reinsurance Initiative, as it's called, aimed at deterring, they say, a resurgent Russia. Will Inglis reports. The F-22 Raptor is arguably the most capable fighter aircraft in the world and a potent symbol of American air power. The F-22's only previous visit to Europe, stealing the show at Farnborough in 2010. This, though, will be a full-blown training deployment, aimed at getting the F-22 ready to fight alongside European planes like the Typhoon. General Mark Welsh is Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force. We have uh, allies in Europe who have advanced capabilities. The Eurofighter is just an example. And we, we need and they would like for us to be able to interoperate in multiple type scenarios. 
And so being able to train side by side with them and do that kind of training is really, really important to us. This all matters because of what's happening in Eastern Europe. It's part of a package of American-backed exercises being used to publicly support allies worried about Russia and deterring any potential aggression. Deborah Lee James is Secretary of the Air Force. Russia's military activity in the Ukraine continues to be of great concern to us and to our European allies. And I think Secretary of Defense Carter put it quite well last week when he said that our approach to Russia needs to be strong and it needs to be balanced. Now, rotational forces and training exercises help us maintain our strong and balanced approach, and we will certainly be continuing these in the future. For the Air Force, an F-22 deployment is certainly on the strong side of the coin. And so today we are announcing that we will very soon deploy F-22s to Europe to support combatant commander requirements and as part of the European Reassurance Initiative. The F-22 is a cut above even the Eurofighter Typhoon. It'll fly alongside in Europe. It is a true fifth-generation fighter, stealthy, extremely manoeuvrable, and crammed full of top-secret electronics. It can carry up to eight air-to-air missiles hidden in its payload bay. If stealth isn't a priority, yet more can hang from the wings. There's no word yet on where the F-22s will be based while they're here. The technologies on board are so secret that even for the air show visit five years ago, they were only allowed to fly from US Air Force bases. Will English reporting there. So, Chris, is there a significance then to this F-22 deployment or not? Yeah, I mean, the F-22, uh, first and foremost, it's, it's, you, can, you can go and see them in uh, Kadena in Okinawa, the American Air Force Base in Okinawa. They're in Korea, etc., and they've done, what, 200 sorties over Syria. So they've been active. But they're all-weather fighters. The one area they haven't worked in is Europe. They need Europe. They need Europe, especially this time of year when it's, when it's getting all crappy. You know, the, 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 the weather's no good for them. But the most important thing about them is they've got things like a thing called JDAM. And that, when you're doing an exercise or you're doing the sort of thing, mission control over against sort of uh, the Russian Air Force, joint direction mission sort of stuff, uh, it is particularly important that the Russians actually see them carry, carrying this thing. They can take out... I, I saw one of these operating, 50,000 feet, right? We're up this end and he's up there. 50,000 feet. Uh, and we're doing 1.7 Mach. Yeah? That's mm. quite fast. It took out a moving target 24 miles away. Now, the, the, you know, the Russians know that. They've got it pasted on the wall in, 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 in Air Force control. But they're going to f- see for the first time these things operating in the sky as a squadron. And what they'll be doing most of all, they'll be listening to the electronics because they want to hear what sort of, uh, how they communicate with each, with each other. Chris and Tim, let's talk about Syria now. Of course, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad say he's confident that his main allies, that's Russia and Iran, will stand by him. He's dismissed speculation that they might abandon him to allow a settlement to be reached to end the fighting in Syria. His comments came after the Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond's visit to Iran, where he opened the British embassy there, or should I say reopened it. Mr Hammond said it was right to work on improving relations with Tehran, but urged caution. So, just how might this improved atmosphere help with the Syria crisis? Tim Marshall and Chris Lee, uh, we are going to talk about this and hopefully discuss it fully. Chris, you first. Should Assad be worried by the improved relations between the West and Iran? Well, the Iranians ain't going anywhere at the moment, are they? I mean, Assad is, is in the position, I think, that most people will agree that people are trying to figure out how you get him out. 
how you how, how you resolve this thing because you can't resolve the thing unless a sad goes etc. Um, there was a huge huge uh, sort of debate going uh, going on in, in Whitehall last night in uh, in the Foreign Office, and that is what you do to bring Assad out. And so what they mean by that they mean you move Assad over to his homeland, that sort of Mediterranean ho- homeland. And, and really, you start to petition uh, petition uh, Syria, and, and that is it. As far as Iran is concerned, Iran, don't forget, are still fighting Shia versus uh, Sunni, and that is particularly important. Tim, in terms of how President Bashar al-Assad is got rid of or otherwise, and who else is looking on to this, and I'm thinking about the the wider Middle East community, Mm. particularly Israel, there are very many agendas at work here. There are, um, and one of them is that Iran seeks to maintain the foothold it has in that part of the world, which gives it a corridor from the Mediterranean via Hezbollah through parts of Syria that Assad controls through the Shia parts of Iraq and then on to Iran. And they want to maintain that corridor, which is why they're not ready to let Assad uh, take uh, the high road. I agree with Christopher. I think that the bolt hole is up there in a place called Latakia on the Mediterranean coast. It's where the Alawites, where he comes from, comes from. Uh, I also agree that there is a lot of talk around, and the Russians are actually exactly looking at, at that. They're looking at a way of, if they have to, persuading him to step down, either to go back to that homeland inside Syria, or there are two countries that have not signed the Hague Convention, and they are Russia and Iran. He could go into exile there. So that's the sort of stuff that's swirling around. But there is no way that Russia or Iran will try to manoeuvre that until the very, very last moment, because they want to hang on to their footholds of, of influence that they have. So I don't think that is on the cards, and I don't think yet that um, Iran is ready to do that. Very briefly, the new nuclear deal gives them $150 billion extra, the Iranians. They only need to spend a very little bit of that to spread it around to their friends, such as Assad, and that, that strengthens him. Um, Veliati, top advisor to uh, the supreme leader in Iran, said that the deal gives Iran more power to support its friends in the region. Tim, for the moment, thank you. Still to come, the injured veterans treading the boards to help with their rehabilitation. Now, let's talk Chilcot. And Sir John Chilcot is facing possible legal action now from bereaved families after again defying calls to set a timetable for publication on the Iraq Inquiry report. Yesterday, Chilcot said he understood of the anguish of the families, those who'd lost loved ones in the conflict, but argued the probe was unprecedented in its scope. Well, let's talk to Chris and Tim about this one as well. Chris, if I can come to you first, uh, what about this scope of this inquiry? Is that a legitimate excuse for this prevarication, this delay? Or uh, is it really ridiculous now it's gone on so long? I don't think for one moment it's an excuse at all. Um, When uh, Chilcot was set up, the one thing that distinguished it from other inquiries was that it was allowed to produce its own terms of reference. And that meant, for example, although it was set up by government, a Parliament could not interfere. So, for example, Parliament cannot get up now and say, right, um, the, the inquiry's got to finish or it's got to finish by Tuesday or, or whatever. But the scope of the inquiry, yes, grew, grew on them. Also, um, the administration of the inquiry was difficult to handle. Uh, also, the briefings for the interrogators for the people on the committee 
was very difficult, and that expanded. And every time they talked to somebody, it seemed they had to talk to three or four, uh, three or four other people at the same time. What we have in uh, in Chilcot, in John Chilcot, is somebody who is a civil servant who decided that his inquiry would leave no doubts, no questions to be further answered. And this is the way he's gone about it. And if you look at the makeup, people like Roddy Lyons or Roderick Lyons, former British ambassador, you can see they think that way too. Tim, the politicians at the front of Chilcot remain the same. The mandarins, the Whitehall machine mm. behind it don't. According to last week's Independent newspaper, there are reputations that are going to be in, sh- going to be shattered by this blockbuster of information that's going to come out in Chilcot. Yeah. Are we seeing here Whitehall deliberately slowing this down to discredit Chilcot's inquiry? I don't think Whitehall. I think certain individuals are making sure that they string it out as long as possible. Look, Claire Short, former International Development Secretary, has broken ranks. She's actually said she got a draft of it. It was as big as War and Peace. She thought it was rubbish. It's had to be rewritten. She's a Blairite, though. She wasn't in favour of the Iraq War, um, but I th- I th- so her version is that it's so big and complicated that they have to rewrite it. That is one reason, allegedly. But I'm more in favour of Sir Robert Francis, who led a public inquiry himself a few years ago. He thinks that those that are going to get criticised are deliberately prevaricating. And but th- what you do if you spread the blame around, then you don't actually blame anyone. And I think that might, might be we're, we're getting little glimpses now. They're going to spread the blame around. So what, was it the system that was at fault or were there individuals that took people to war on a mistake or even, as some would say, a lie? Um, I I'm slightly disagree with Christopher. I, I think they really need to get on with it and I think Chilcot needs to bang heads and say, you guys have to have your, your, your rewritten, your written, um, what you think about this in by a certain date because I will publish by a certain date because h- how long is forever? But he can't do that. I know he's he can't do that in his terms of reference. Yeah. The truth is, people are looking for two things. One, confirmation that it was legal or illegal, and mm. how do we get Tony Blair? The rest of it yeah. doesn't matter to the general But they're not going to get Tony Blair, no. and all go legal or legal. They're just going to say an awful no. lot of people made an awful lot of bad decisions. Right, let's leave that there for now. I expect we could discuss that for another half hour, but we must get on to Afghanistan, where a key military base in the strategic town of Musakala has been retaken by the Taliban after several days of heavy fighting. Last weekend, US forces were called in to help the Afghan troops there, and a number of airstrikes took place. The defence of Musakala was one of the worst battles of the war in Afghanistan in terms of British casualties, more than 20 British soldiers losing their lives. Well, joining us to look at the increasing security concerns in Afghanistan is Professor Tony King from the University of Exeter. Uh, he's the author of a number of books on the armed forces and he worked at the ISAF HQ in Afghanistan in 2009 and 2010. Professor, thanks for joining us. Firstly, is Musakala strategically important? How important is it? Well, well, it's it's certainly a, a significant moment, and in terms of the area in northern Helmand, I mean, it is it is an important town, and the district itself is is of, of political uh, and social significance. Um, I think at the same time, it's important not to um, exaggerate uh, and become too overexcited about the the fall of the town. I mean, you know, it is a significant event, but it's not necessarily a disastrous or genuinely strategic event at this particular point. Now, we know two American soldiers were killed in an attack at the former British base Camp Bastion or other next to it. Uh, Is that likely to bring the Americans back in greater numbers? 
Very difficult, very difficult to say. I, I don't think there's any appetite in, in, in Washington at this point under, under Barack Obama to increase uh, troop numbers. I presume that those troops that were killed down there were special forces. Uh, and my understanding is there is that the um, special forces down there are playing two roles, mentoring, of course, but also coordinating um, the airstrikes. And this is, this is uh, I think, important in understanding the fall of Muzakala. I mean, talking with Afghan soldiers in the period 2012, 2013, it was pretty clear uh, that given the withdrawal of very large numbers of Western troops who are very well equipped and very well trained, some um, contraction of the central area of authority which the uh, Afghan government exerted was pretty much inevitable after the drawdown in December uh, 2014. So uh, I, I think that the question is whether the Americans can, with the Afghan forces, sustain this slightly reduced area of influence. So if the Taliban is or was expected to resurge then and to take over certain parts without those troops being there, just how long can that be left before people really start saying this whole Helmand Afghan war was pointless in the first place? Well, well it's, it's a question to be raised. Um, I, I mean, I think there's a few, few things to say about this. There seems to be no, there's no essential connection between the emergence of the Afga- uh, of the Taliban up in northern uh, northern Helmand and they're retaking Mizakala and a, and a takeover of the whole country. So the notion that some limited setbacks in these areas around Kandahar and, and Helmand mean a complete strategic uh, catastrophe in which the whole Afghan campaign was entirely pointless, uh, th- that seems to be hyperbolic. I, I, I don't think that, that is a, a sensible way of viewing these, these setbacks. However, of course, it does raise the question of the purpose. And I think here uh, there's a couple of things to say. Firstly, from the British perspective, despite the media criticism, uh, the British effort in Helmand was successful. What was its purpose? Its purpose was to secure the central area and to show uh, competent support for the American strategy in Afghanistan and the South. It did that admirably and restored the credibility of the British forces. Now, in terms of the wider Western NATO strategy, is Afghanistan going to remain stable? Are the Taliban going to take over? Mm, it's not entirely certain. I, I think it, it would be very uh, unwise to assume, because the Taliban have had some, some successes, that therefore a complete catastrophe is inevitable in 18 months, two years' time. It's possible, but it's not inevitable. Professor, thank you. Tim Marshall, can I put that to you? The resurgence of the Taliban isn't something we really need to worry about. Um, I think it is, Uh, and if I could engage in some hyperbole. I said a year ago that by the summer of 2016, the Taliban, or variations of it, will have taken most of Helmand. I stand by that. Musakala is the first urban area they have taken. They have grown in strength in other parts. There is no way the Afghan army can stand in their way in certain parts of the country. The president of Afghanistan will end up being what Karzai was, the mayor of Kabul, the fort will be held by the American Special Forces who will ring the capital, allowing them to suggest that it's still a unified country. It is sliding, and it's slid reasonably quickly, and it's going to carry on sliding. I have no doubt that the Afghan army cannot hold the South. Christopher Lee, briefly. When you finish a war, you change the tapestry of the war ground that you've just fought over, and that's what we have at the moment. 
Come next year, the Americans are going to start pulling out of whatever, much of what they've got. You talk to people who've been training with 215 Corps, the Afghan army at the moment, they say you ain't seen nothing yet because the one thing that's missing, we've got no close air support. And that's the beginning of a whole new drama of, of warfare in Afghanistan. Chris and Tim, thank you. Now in central London tonight, a group of injured ex-service men and women will be performing Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The Combat Veterans Players Company have been performing since March 2012 when they appeared at the Old Vic Tunnels with a rendition of A Midsummer Night's Dream. One of their latest recruits is BFBS's very own Cassidy Little, who's been telling us how working on these performances is a fantastic way to people for people to rehabilitate. The Combat Veteran Players, CVP, uh, they're an award-winning group. Um, they started about uh, about four years ago, they started. Uh, it was Jackie's idea, originally. Uh, Jackie, she is our producer and has been for a long time. She wanted to put some guys together and do some theatre as a, as, a, as a form of getting together as a form of um, kind of group therapy. What she didn't realize is actually she ended up with a bunch of guys who had some really good talent in the room. So I, I think they started with Midsummer Night's Dream um, four years ago, three years, three or four years ago. Uh, and then they, they did another version of, of Midsummer Night's Dream. Then they did Henry, I think, uh, Henry V, uh, in the old Vic Tunnels. Uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company got involved and started doing some um, some workshops with them. The Globe got involved, wanted to put one of their shows on there as well. And so it just started gaining momentum, gaining traction. And a lot of that's down to Jackie. You mentioned the group therapy aspect. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how that can benefit you. Some of the things, I mean, I was a part of Bravo 22 Company um, and still am and still very active in Bravo 22 Company. And one of the things that is becoming more and more and more obvious to everybody is theater is, is a great way of, of re-implementing those, those principles that you had back when you were in the military. So that, that sense of group, that sense of accomplishment, that need for trust or to be trusted, those things, the sense of, um, uh, not, to, not to be dramatic, but the sense of danger, you know, the idea that, you know, you're going on stage in front of a lot of people and that you have to trust the other people. These are all things that are, are clear and present in a theater group. So taking on a challenge like Shakespeare from guys um, at the CVP who, are, who have had psychological injuries or physical injuries and to take on such a huge, huge meal as Shakespeare and then to expose themselves in front of an audience, I mean, that in itself creates bonds that you can't fake. Interesting you touch on that, that thrill aspect, if I can put it that way, because often that is cited as one of the most challenging aspects when you, you step out of the military in any form. If you're an injured serviceman as, as well, obviously that is something that is even more difficult to, to recapture in a way. We talk about all the sports that people get involved in. Is that part of it? Is, is You say about danger, is it is it just doing something that challenges you, pushes you? Well, this is one of the reasons why we end up with so many ex-servicemen and women in prison after their uh, after their discharge, because they are looking for that thrill that they're struggling to find in, in Civvy Street. What Jackie and the and the combat veteran players have done is they've created a safe environment to to get those those kicks. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a good, healthy place to do it, and you're not at risk of going behind the bars. And what you're seeing in like with the the, the Paralympics, with the sporting events that we've seen through Prince Harry, etc., is that the camaraderie again that people look to try and recapture that can be, can be 
can be difficult. And I guess in this theatre company, that's exactly what you're doing. That's exactly what we've what we've created is is that sense of challenge, is that sense of that teamwork of pushing forward. Um, and if you want to see that, if you want to see how. Um, broken and busted soldiers can get up and pick themselves up and then learn a whole different language and then perform it in front of people, then come on down to the Leicester Square Theatre tonight at about... Doors open at 7, 7.30 the show starts, and uh, and sit down and have a watch. And uh, if you don't like it, well, tweet about it and we'll see what happens. Ah, good old Cassidy Little there talking to our reporter David Spencer. Uh, Tim, you were nodding your head all the way through that. Uh, what a great project. Uh, I, I have no knowledge uh, of it, but uh, when I heard about it, I, I looked up... Um, Twelfth Night, and I came across, in nature there's no blemish but the mind. None can be called deformed but the unkind. And those guys, oh, you know, yeah. Look what they—it's a terrific project. Fantastic. And Chris, you, you've seen some theatre therapy in action yourself in the states. I've worked in it. I worked on it for two years um, with prisoners, prisoners in 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 you know, the penitentiary, as well as with American vets. Uh, with uh, with all sorts of problems. I'll give you one bit of warning. Uh, the experience I got and others that worked on it there, and to some extent in, in France as well, the problem is what next? These guys are not actors, and actors have problems resting. <laughs> and it's what happens next, and that is the crucial side. That's when you need to be dragged out of it. Chris, thank you. That's all we have time for this week on SITREP. My thanks to Christopher Lee and Tim Marshall and all our contributors this week. Do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can download the programme as a podcast as well. Search for BFBS SITREP. Join us again next week. But from me, Paula Middlehurst, this time, it's goodbye for now. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This.